If you're a fan of big ideas, debate, and politics, check out our festival partner, Geopolitical Magazine Foreign Policy. A forum for informed debate about global affairs, foreign policy keeps a finger on the pulse of world news and political happenings. Beyond articles that delve behind the headlines via traditional reporting, Foreign Policy has so many other products to offer, ensuring that no matter how you like to engage with eye-opening content, there is a method for you. Check out their free offerings, like Foreign Policy Live, their forum for live journalism, newsletters, and podcasts. And with a subscription, unlock in-depth features and quarterly magazines, including their recently dropped spring edition, All About India. Fans of IAI will love Foreign Policy for more of the mind-expanding, insightful content that they seek. To explore their content, take advantage of an exclusive discount for IAI fans. Subscribe now using promo code LIGHT24 to save 50% and unlock access to everything Foreign Policy has to offer. Hello and welcome. You're listening to Philosophy for Our Times. Are you the sort of person who's glued to their smartphone? You've always got the latest gadgets. And maybe you've even made friends through online forums. Maybe you've met your partner on a dating website. Technology has revolutionised the way we interact with others. But what's the price we pay for the buzz we get from likes online? Are tech companies forcing us to follow their every win, mining us for data that they can then profit from? Or do we have the power to harness technology for good, making our lives easier and giving us more free time, connecting us with people and enriching our lives? To debate this issue, we have on our panel Chi Onwara, Shadow Minister for Industrial Strategy, Science and Innovation, Kate Russell, a technology reporter and presenter of BBC Click, and Professor of Philosophy at the University of Bristol, James Ladyman. Isabel Hilton hosts. So it's hard to believe it's only 11 years since the first iPhone. I, in the pub last night, I, a local gentleman um, was lamenting the fact that there were a lot of single men right in this neighbourhood. And when I asked why that was, there being no women in the pub, by the way, um, I thought might be a clue. He said, no, it's the young people. They're all on their phones. They're all socialising through their phones. And he felt at least that there was a... He was an older chap. So there, the, the iPhone, which we love has generated all these anxieties about, is it rotting the brains of our teenagers? Is it destroying the fabric of our society? Will social life ever be the same again? And without further ado, Chief, please, oh. kick us off. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you very much, Isabel. I'm a, a member of Parliament for Newcastle. Before coming to Parliament, I worked as a chartered engineer. I'm a chartered electrical engineer. And in developing you know, hardware, what every engineer does, doesn't say that in the manual, but you always spend some time disconnecting your circuit, whatever it is, from the, from the main supply, turning everything off, letting all those el excited electrons go back to their rest state, you know, so that you can tell whether it will is really working. You know, and the same is true for people. So people, yes, you know, we do, everyone does need to spend time switching off and switching out, I would say, of digital uh, relationships. 
But that doesn't mean, and it shouldn't mean, building some sort of digital monasteries in order to retreat from digital overload. You know, the main fact thing that we need to get right is having technology which is made for people and not trying to remake people for technology. I think that the, the, there are behavioral changes and adaptations that we need to make because of the way in which technology can connect us. But to be frank, I don't think, you know, I think that social media isn't as profound a change to society as, say, the printing press, which brought literacy out of castles and into ordinary people's homes. You know, there are some behavioral changes we need to make and get accustomed to how to you know, not be checking our necessarily checking our online status every five seconds. But to be honest, you know, the fact that we try to make ourselves look good on Instagram is no real different from the fact we try to make ourselves look good or talk ourselves up down at the pub or at the school gates. It's just how we're doing it and how it's automated. What we need to do, what does fundamentally need to change, is the way in which data and our digital selves is built around us and not around, you know, not concentrated and consolidated by either the, the tech giants or by government. We need to be in charge of our digital trails that we are all excreting all the time. Technology needs to be about people. People need to be in charge of the digital tools that we use. And for that, uh, one of the things that we need is a bill of digital rights, which puts us in charge of our digital selves. And then, you know, I trust people to make the right kinds of decisions about what they do with their digital selves, just as you make the right decisions about your real lives. But you need the tools to do that. And right now we haven't got them. Thank you very much. Kate, you were uh, voted by Computer Weekly the 13th most influential woman in British IT. Yes. Uh, so if you're expecting the 12th most influential, <laughs> I apologize. We're really disappointed. <laughs> she couldn't make it. It was a bit it, cheap. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, the, this notion of being in charge, is that something that you recognize from your digital life? Um, yeah, I mean... <laughs> Basically, we, we, I, I've been a technology reporter since 1995, um, and I got into technology in 84 um, when I, my brother got a computer at home, BBC Micro, the game Elite. Any of you play Elite? A couple of nods in the audience there. The introduction to this panel, if you read it in the brochure, says that people check their mobile phones 72 times a day. Now, I think that's actually fairly conservative for most people these days. So we are very, very much attached to our technology. Why is that? Well, actually, it's by design. Um, there are things called dark patterns, which have been exploited by people. They're collecting data about us to find out what our habits are, what we respond to. One of them is the little dopamine hit that you get when you answer a red notification. Uh, you know, if you've ever gone onto a website or an app and it said, um, tick this box if you don't want to receive notifications from us, tick this. And then the third one will be, don't tick this box if you don't, if you want to see advertising from our partners. Well, this is by design. They're called dark patterns. If you're interested in more, just, search, just research dark patterns. Everyone's talking about it on the internet. But your cognitive biases are being mined for profit. And that's because business success is measured by numbers of clicks, numbers of hits, numbers of likes. So we are being mined for profit. And for me, I, I think we're not responsible for this. And just putting our phones away and unplugging 
is not going to release the stress levels. If you've ever kind of like mislaid your phone and done the kind of, you know, that instant feeling of kind of like, where's my tech? Um, that's not going to go away just because you've hidden your phone, because you're still going to be thinking about that. Um, and I think there's a more of a leaning towards, um, or for me, I'm leaning more towards the idea of creating apps and websites that use good cues and actually are designed to give you white space, to give you the motivation to step away. And I would like to see in the future actually businesses who are creating these things take more responsibility. And I think I would respond well if there was a kite mark on an app, for example, to say, we have designed this to give you the space that you need so you get the benefit of the technology, but actually you're not driven by these little sort of like psychological cues. So instead of creating addiction, they, they, they give you space to, to exactly, step back. Exactly, and okay. they give you so that motivation to sort of take a step back every now and again. Okay. That's what I would like to see. So that's one way, if you like, of answering the question, you know, do we need to step back? Do we need to shut down? Mm. Perhaps not absolutely. James, professor of philosophy at Bristol, you... To the question, is it time we shut down? Is it time we walked away? What, what, what's your view? Um, well, broadly, I would say it is destroying the social fabric and it is um, stupefying us, the technology. And I agree with Kate, it's been designed to do that. We know that there are techniques that are used in video games and they're used in gambling machines that people get addicted to. And that's what's happening with your phone. And don't think of it as a device that gives you what you want. Think of it as a device that gives you what you can't resist. Those aren't the same thing, right? But that's the way it's been built. It's been built to, as Kate has said, to exploit cognitive shortcuts that we have in order to, what, make our lives better? No, increase the time we spend on site increase the click-through rate. That's what it's for. And as a result, it's having all these effects on society and human beings, on their cognition, on their concentration, and so on, on, on political discourse, on public discourse, on decision-making, and so on. All of that, massive, massive effects are happening because there are a bunch of people who realize they could make a lot of money if they got us to completely change our lifestyles so that we were spending hours a day on machines that didn't even exist 10 or 15 years ago. And that is indeed what we are all doing. These technology companies have used their knowledge of our brains in order to engineer devices that will control us. From an engineering point of view, when you talked about being an engineer, it's control theory, right? The, the, the subject, the individual human being, is the system. And as an engineer, your job is to control it. And what do you want to control it to do? Spend time on site, click, like. And we are the victims of that. And notice the tech engineers who've made millions with this stuff are all sending their kids to schools where phones are banned, laptops are banned, tablets are banned. They think of it as for the proles. It's not for them and their kids, right? It's for the masses. The, the masses can be given these devices Addicted, made addicted to these devices and more and more mediate every aspect of their lives through these devices. And, and you mentioned precedence, but, but that, that is completely unprecedented. A single infrastructure mediating everything, travel, leisure, consumption, everything you do going through this system. 
Okay, so it's enslaving us and making us stupid. Um, uh, on the other hand, you know, we, we could be quite handy. So <laughs> I, uh, <laughs> there's a kind of balance here, perhaps. So, you know, so is it doing more harm than good? I mean, you, you have to admit it has very profound negative. Oh, I think, you know, I think there are two potential visions of technology here, you know. And again, you know, as, as an engineer and a politician, what I would say to you is the choice of which vision becomes part of our reality is up should be up to us. So that I mean I do agree what what would be unprecedented if you like is you know we because what, what you haven't mentioned is, is we pay for these things. You know we buy them. One thing that you know even in, in Big Brother or, or the prisoner if anybody knows the prisoner here, you know, didn't say that you would be paying for buying your own jailer. You would be paying to be uh, watched and monitored, you know, and you would be, you would be sort of, um, <laughs> they sort of outsourced the control system to you to purchase yourself. Uh, but that's one vision of technology. It doesn't have to, what I'm saying is it doesn't have to be like that. Technology does what you tell it to do. And if you had, if you have, you know, a tech savvy government and regulatory environment that puts people back in control of the technology you know it doesn't it doesn't have to be eating up all your data lives and making money out of it it can be it can be regulated it can be you know controlled we can't people can say can choose the kind of technology we want if we have the means to do it. And I suppose I would agree that we don't have the means to do it as individuals and we don't have the government that wants to stand up or governments that want to stand up to the tech giants to make it happen. So, so Kate, you, I, I, if I can praise you slightly, is saying that essentially it's our failure for failing to control those who perpetuate this, this assault on us. Um, first, is this assault as damaging as people fear it may be? And secondly, is there a way of regulating as she would like it to see regulated so that it does less harm? Uh, you know, businesses have always been about selling us stuff, right? Even before technology, uh, you know, marketing tactics, they want to sell us stuff they want us to consume. And I think we are sleepwalking into a society where we expect the government, business, the machine to make those make protect us to make those choices but we have to take responsibility for our own selves and that starts with education you know that starts with giving young people access to technology showing them the benefits but also making sure that they're aware of you know the, the need to think critically about what they read online and also you know putting the onus on companies to be better, to do positive, you know, to make positive computing choices in their design work. There are so many great things we've had because of the internet, you know, and we can't throw the baby out with the bathwater in this respect. James, you were trying to well say I something. I mean, uh, what I think that te technology is in danger of doing to us, and, uh, and of course I'm completely aware of where we've always had problems with technology, but in general the way they've been solved is by regulation. I mean, and it's almost like we're, we're thinking, oh, look what happens when you let human beings completely do whatever they want. It doesn't go well, right? So, you know, we need, we need regulation. I mean, we have, we have regulations governing every other technology. We had a regulation, regulations governing the, governing the printing press. When um, the printing press was invented, uh, um, posters became so problematic that in the city of Paris, every single piece of wall was covered with a poster. And Paris still has laws now restricting people putting up posters dating back to that time because people wanted your attention and they would put up posters to get your attention and it needed the state to say, actually, we can't have everything covered in posters, <laughs> right? So I think, 
I mean, people talk about regulation as if it's some, some hideous bad thing. Well, it's not. You know, it's a way that we achieve social coordination, right? And what's, what scares me is that there's so many ordinary kinds of human interaction that are being cut out of life. And in particular, interaction with people who aren't like you. You know, when you, you go to the shop, you have to have an interaction with someone. But we're, we're cutting that out. Shops are closing. Even the shops that exist have, auto, have machines with which you interact. And so it's, and it's starting to, to eliminate many forms of ordinary human interaction and, I think, and, and replace them with a kind of facsimile of, of human interaction, which is like junk food. You know, it's, it, the kind of social interaction that you have on social media is like the equivalent of junk food compared to real food. It's not the same as being with another person. I would contest that. I mean, d d I... I'm a gamer. I'm an online gamer. Um, I had celebrated my 50th birthday last weekend and I went to The Hague to meet a bunch of my online gaming buddies who I've met from across Europe. We met in the physical world. I game with people who are of all different genders, you know, transgender, non-identified, um, different uh, cultures, different religions different ages, a lot of them are women, and we are really genuine friends. That's not junk food friendships, and I never would have met them had it not been for online gaming. Everyone's perfectly capable of having really deep and valid human interactions online. Um, it, they just approach so it in a different it's way. It's not all but it's junk not, it's not my thesis that all online interaction is superficial. It's rather that there is more and more of, of a kind of faux social contact and, and less uh, genuine social contact because of the amount of time people are spending doing it. And I think, I mean, you, we see a lot of evidence, you know, an epidemic of loneliness, children um, you know, going, going crazy because of social media, d wishing it had never been invented, having never been able to escape the kind of common commentaries of their what peer group and so on. What is it in their life that made them rely so heavily on that? That's th they didn't just pick up a phone and then well, suddenly... Well, you could say that, you could say that, or you could say, you could say, what is it that they as individuals have, are doing that makes them rely on that? Or you could say, what is it we are doing as a society to create uh, to create the ready supply of these machines which will make young brains become addicted to them. And Kate, there is a, a relationship between um, more time spent online and less time spent talking to real people. And you can see it in restaurants where you see a couple sitting in a restaurant, each of them on their phones and actually not talking to but each is other. But that, is and that the problem of phone or is there a problem between the couple that makes them interact in that <laughs> way? <laughs> yeah. so you're in a chicken and an egg and thing. I'm sure, there, and but I'm sure. I, <laughs> And I'm sure, in fact, I know that when television first came out, there was like, you know, huge concerns that people, families were spending time at home watching television instead of talking to each other. And yet now we celebrate, you know, families coming together around Strictly or whatever. So some of some of this is is new and different. And as human beings, we will adapt, you know, and we will respond to it. But what is, you know, what is my, you know, real concern is whether we've got the tools and the rights to do that. You know, the, the digit, the, the, the citizen rights to be able to do that, the control of our data, the control of our time. But also, and we haven't mentioned that, you know, the 10% of people who don't have access to broadband at home still. And, and you talked about education, Kate, as being something that we can do. But actually, education is provided by the state and the government, you know, as a, as, a f as a public good and getting that education right so that young people can, young people and all of us have got those digital skills. So you do need to have 
um, the rights and the skills to be able to be fully formed, if you like, digital citizens who can decide whether you know you want to spend your time emailing your partner while at the around the breakfast table or actually talking but to them. Education doesn't only happen in school, and I s I meet a lot of um, people who use technology as a babysitter for their, you know, I'm busy, I've got to do this, I've got to do that. And they stick the kid in front of the Xbox or whatever and say, there you go, you know, and be entertained by the technology. And I think we need to do a better job of educating parents to spend time with their children, to, to figure out better ways of using technology. But we're also just at the beginning of this process, and we're talking about phones, but virtual reality is kind of on the, on the edge of, of becoming almost, you know, much more yeah. universally available. And that's uh, a world that, that can't be yeah. shared. That's a, that's a very individual experience which does not translate to the, r to the real world. There's a reason why virtual reality hasn't taken off in the way they expected for gaming, and it is for that very reason, that it is an enclosed experience. But we're getting to the point where mixed reality will allow you to overlay that virtual experience but still participate in the real world around you. I personally, I'm not big on virtual reality. I think there are certain applications, education, training, you know, remote kind of like um, uh, facilities to be able to see things, but I actually don't think virtual reality is the big shebang everyone thinks. I think mixed reality, when we get to the HoloLens, Microsoft's technology for allowing you to still participate in the real world, but have that kind of all around you tech experience. So I wouldn't worry too much about virtual reality. But you don't see it as dangerous, James. Presumably you're no more consoled by the idea of virtual reality than you are by. Well, I, I've. I'm having an all-around experience now. <laughs> and I, I Do you want to hear more from the world's leading thinkers? If the answer to that question is yes, subscribe to iai.tv for unlimited access to thousands of debates, talks, articles, academy courses and live events. Are you bored of the surface-level news, politics, sports and entertainment coverage on your newsfeed? Go deeper. Get the philosophy behind the news and get the latest big ideas from the world's leading thinkers on subjects at the core of the human condition, life, the universe and everything in between. It's free for the first month and there's no commitment to pay, so subscribe now to understand the world beyond the surface level. <laughs> I suppose I would wonder, I mean, I, mean, I, I think, you know, a lot of people would say, look, virtual reality is a way of distracting people from the material conditions of most people's existence, which are really problematic. We can house you all in little boxes and you can go on um, virtual reality and you know, experience what it's like to walk in a meadow. Well, actually, it'd be better if people were able to walk in meadows uh, and not housed in boxes and not having to have a surrogate experience via tech, which is a cheap way of basically mollifying them, as far as I can see. We're talking about technology relationships in fr and freedom. Well, soon it's going to be pretty much impossible not to participate in these technologies. Yeah. And, and I think so that's, that's really problematic. You know, it, it will have been made true that everyone yeah. in society has to have a smartphone or an email account or so on to do anything. And, and I, I don't think that's a good development. Can I, can I just yeah. say two sort of opposite things about that? Well, just, so, so as an MP, I see in my surgeries 
people in tears because they have been sanctioned. They have no food. They're going to food banks. They have been sanctioned because they cannot sign on online. And they can't sign online because they don't have broadband at home because they can't pay for it. So they are, they are on going to food banks because they don't have the skills. They've never been given the opportunity to learn or the infrastructure, which is too expensive for them. That's why they're on the benefits in the first place. Um, the other thing I'd say is that I'd, you know, there's no regulation of our visual image or virtual reality selves. And which is that a bad thing? I certainly don't want to be in somebody else's reality without having some, some say um, <laughs> over that, you know, whether it's virtual or real. Behind this, something else we haven't like, mentioned is, you know, the lack of diversity in those who create this technology. Uh, as a female engineer, now only 10% of engineers are female. The figures for socioeconomic group and uh, background minority ethnic are also really unrepresentative. We can't expect technology to be humane and to promote humane relationships if most of humanity is not part of those who are developing it. And and just and so I just want to <laughs> talk about the ways in which technology exaggerates uh, power inequalities in yeah, society. Yeah, and I think, uh, you know, you, you mentioned someone being denied benefits. Uh, someone the other night was saying to me, oh, I, I was trying to rent somewhere but it's all done online. So yeah. if you've got a faster machine with a better broadback con connection, then you can tick the box or whatever the hell you have to do on whatever platform to say that you want the property and you've got to be ready to do it. So the people with the better tech are empowered. It's like with iPhones, right? That the security is much, much better on um, Macs um, and they cost more, right? So, you know, the digital proles can all have machines that are much easier to hack and Though the the intelligentsia or the the elite can have their iPhones and be a little bit more okay. secure, and I and I think it's we, I we, we see this with, with all I of this. I was just going to address that because it's not the security is better on iPhones; it's that there's fewer of them, so that there is less of a target audience for the criminals. Also, the you ecosystem's know. closed. And, and, uh, yeah, on iPhones, so you can't just load anything on your iPhone easily uh, without uh, knowing how so to uh, how to uh, hack uh, it. I mean, I agree with what you're saying, but I d but um, but iPhones are not are not better technology. No, well, I'm not. <laughs> I'm not making an advertisement. I'm not, not making an, an advertisement for Apple, but I'm, I'm, I'm citing that as a yet another example of the inequality that that's we're talking about here, where the the people who've already got power and wealth and education, then yeah, technology is great, fantastic. Yeah. It's just empowering, mm. right? But for people who don't have technology wealth, sorry, don't have power, wealth, and education, it, technology is a tool of oppression, and it's also it's cutting them out more and more that more and more decision making is being done in an automated way so if you're rich a person will decide whether you get that's a loan if you're poor an algorithm no, that's will decide. that's absolutely true which is why that's absolutely true which is why we need to have rights so that algorithms uh, algorithms firstly are not um, totally obscure, uh, you know, that y nobody can see how they are making these decisions from getting a loan, but also from performance pay for teachers in the US, for example, or, or, where or housing decisions. Or so parole, or, or, parole or sentencing. Or sen parole and sentencing, absolutely. But also what it does do, and this is really, really important, is that it automates bias because it's only, it's dependent on the data that comes in and there is data which is, the data is biased because we live in a biased world. What humans can do is see through some of that bias 
algorithms never do that. They just automate the bias. And so that's why, again... There are cases, however, we, where... We're being very negative here. Can yeah. we be I'm going to make a positive <laughs> point on, on, on poor people. It absolutely transformed the lives of um, farmers in remote areas, for example, in Africa or, or, or petty traders, because they could find out what the price was in the market uh, without having to travel 40 miles. So actually, there are ways in which, which e-commerce at, 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 at the level of really quite poor people has been transformed by, by, by digital tools. So that's a positive point. Technology can be a tool of oppression, but it can also be a tool of massive liberation. Anyone remember that the riots, like the, it was about six, seven, eight years ago, and the cleanup crew came together, people came together on social media and said, let's clean up the streets, you know, and they came out with brooms and stuff. The Arab Spring happened because people could communicate together, and dictatorships were overthrown. And um, but dictatorships are currently being reinforced. Yeah, that little renaissance is Yeah, but the people understand that they can have some control. It's all I'm saying is there's balance, right? It but it's also true that the, the security companies can now, so security services can now identify who's an important node in the social network, Precisely. right? Yeah. Who's, a, who's a conduit for information? And then they can take them out and disempower. I mean, I mean, if you look at the number of people who've been arrested in Turkey, for example, you know, ha, ha, to what extent are authoritarian regimes using technology to identify those they deem antisocial and take them out of the loop? I would say probably a lot more than we know. Okay. And we're doing and the same with terrorism. And it's on the increase. And we're doing the same with, with you know, people who are, are, are planning acts of terrorism. Okay, so we have decided that it's a very good thing and a very bad thing. <laughs> Thank you all for coming. Thank you for your questions. Um, I know this is a conversation which is going to go on and on. But for now, thank you. And please join me in thanking our speakers. And you can follow me on Twitter. We hope you enjoyed this podcast, which was brought to you by the Institute of Art and Ideas. So what do you think? Is it our responsibility to educate ourselves on the darker side of tech companies? Or should the government be regulating how we interact with technology? Let us know what you think by tweeting at IAI underscore TV with the hashtag philosophy for our times.